Today we embark on a, a brand new series, having concluded our series in Acts last week. Um, who knew 19 weeks could go so fast? Um, Acts was a great reminder for us of how the gospel spread from just 120 people face-to-face with Jesus receiving a commission that they would receive power to be his witnesses to the end of the earth. It's a great journey for us to trace how that commission was being fulfilled and to see, particularly through Paul's ministry, how he contextualized the gospel to each city and group of people he met so that he might win some for Christ. Where we left off and where we finished that series last week was that it was now our turn. It's our turn to seize the gospel opportunities before us for here and for now. And so as we're looking at the shape and the flavour of our ministry in our context here and in this place, I believe there are some great lessons we can learn from the book of Colossians. And so today we're starting our series in Colossians. And uh, I thought it would be a really good idea to start with an overview of the book before we start teaching from chapter 1 today. So there is a great resource called YouTube. And on there, I found this wonderful video that is great. It gives a really good grounding and and start. So if you'd just like to look at the screens, we'll have a look at that video, and it's going to play now. Paul's letter to the Colossians. It was written during one of Paul the Apostle's many imprisonments for announcing Jesus as the risen Lord. And the letter is addressed to a group of people that Paul had never met who made up a church community that he didn't start. This church in Colossae was started by a co-worker of Paul's named Epaphras, who was actually from that city. And Epaphras had recently visited Paul in prison, and he updated him on how well the Colossians were doing overall. But he also mentioned some of the cultural pressures tempting them to turn away from Jesus. And so Paul wrote this letter to encourage the Colossians to address the issues that Epaphras had raised and then to challenge them to a greater devotion to Jesus. The letter's design and flow of thought are pretty easy to follow. The opening movement focuses on Jesus as the exalted Messiah. Paul then goes on to show how his suffering in prison is for the exalted Jesus. And then he addresses the pressures tempting the Colossians to turn away from Jesus. After this, he explores the new way of life that Jesus' resurrection opened up for them. So the letter opens with two prayers. Paul first thanks God that he learned from Epaphras that the Colossians have been totally faithful to Jesus, showing love for God and their neighbors, all because of the hope they have in the new creation that Jesus has in store. And so he moves on to pray that they would grow in their wisdom and understanding about Jesus. And then Paul has placed a poem here to help the Colossians and us do exactly that. It's the centerpiece of chapter one, a poem all about the crucified and exalted Messiah. It has two parallel stanzas, and it's crammed with language and imagery from the books of Genesis and Exodus, from the Psalms and the Proverbs. The first stanza explores how Jesus is the true image of God. In him, the full character and purpose of God is embodied in a human. He's the firstborn, an Old Testament phrase about Jesus' royal status over all creation. He shares in the very identity of the one true creator God. And by him, all reality, all powers and authorities, spiritual and human, have been created. It's in Jesus the Messiah that we discover the very author and king of creation. And so in the second stanza, we discover he's also the one bringing about a new creation. He's the head of a new body, which refers to Jesus' people, who are the new humanity, of which his own resurrection existence is a prototype. 
in him God's glorious temple presence dwells. And so it's through Jesus' death and resurrection that God has reconciled himself to humanity, to all spiritual powers, to all of creation. It's a remarkable poem, and Paul will keep referring back to it as he goes on in the letter. So he first shows how the truth of this poem transforms his own experience of suffering in prison. He's being punished for announcing to the Greek and the Roman world that Jesus is the resurrected Lord and King of all. And so his suffering, he thinks, is not a sign of defeat. It's actually his way of participating in Jesus' own suffering done as an act of love. And so his hardships are actually a cause for joy. He's imprisoned for the surprising news that Israel's resurrected Messiah is creating a new multi-ethnic family. And more, just as the divine glory dwelt in Jesus, so Jesus dwells in and among his international family. Or as Paul says, the Messiah is in you all, the hope of glory. Paul then addresses the cultural pressures that are tempting the Colossians to turn away from Jesus. They were confronted by a combination of mystical polytheism along with a pressure to observe the laws of the Torah. So all these new Christians, they had grown up worshiping the various Greek and Roman gods who governed different arenas of human life. And many simply included Jesus as one more deity that they could worship. There was also great pressure from the Jewish Christian community for these non-Jews to complete their commitment to the Messiah by following all of the laws found in the Torah. Specifically, he mentions eating a kosher diet, observing sacred days, and circumcision. It's very similar to the problem he addressed in the letter to the Galatians. For Paul, to give in to either of these temptations is compromise. It's a failure to grasp who Jesus really is and what he did on their behalf. The Colossians used to live in fear of spiritual powers and elemental spirits, as Paul calls them. But Jesus triumphed over these through his death and resurrection. He freed the Colossians from any obligation to them. In the same way, Jesus fulfilled on our behalf all of the laws of the Torah, which never had the power to transform the selfish human heart anyway. And so what Jesus did in his life and death and resurrection, it lacks nothing. It doesn't need to be supplemented by following the laws. He is the reality to which all of the laws of the Torah were pointing anyway. Instead of the laws, followers of Jesus have the power of his resurrection to change them, which is what he goes on to explore. Following Jesus means joining his new humanity because their lives have now been joined to the risen Jesus' life. And this is why Paul challenges the Colossians to set their minds on things above, where the Messiah is seated or rules at God's right hand. Now, Paul doesn't mean here, think about how you'll one day leave earth and go to heaven. Rather, the heavens are the transcendent place from which Jesus rules now over all of creation. And from there, he will one day return here to transform all things. Or, as Paul says, when the Messiah who is your life is revealed, you too will be revealed with him in glory. So Paul challenges them to live in the present as the kinds of new humans they will one day become. He uses the image of their old humanity, characterized by distorted sexuality and destructive speech. For Christians, that humanity died with Jesus and has been replaced by his own new humanity, which is characterized by mercy and generosity, by forgiveness and love. And this humanity, it transcends the ethnic and social boundary lines of our world to create, in Paul's words, a people where there is no one Greek or Jewish, circumcised or uncircumcised, slave or free, 
but the Messiah is all and is in all people. Paul then gets really practical, and he shows the Colossians what this new humanity might look like in a first-century Roman household, which was a highly authoritarian institution where the male patriarch held the power of life and death over his wife and children and slaves. Not so in a Christian household. Here, the risen Jesus is the true Lord. And so, in the Lord... The wife allows her husband to become responsible for her. And the husband is subject to Jesus by loving his wife and placing her well-being above his own. In a home where Jesus is Lord, children are not objects, but are called to maturity and to respect. And parents are to raise their children with patience and understanding. Christians who are slaves are to honor their human masters precisely because they're not the real master. Jesus is. And Christians who have slaves are to understand that this slave is not their property, but rather a fellow member of Jesus' body to be honored and embraced in love. Paul's walking a very fine line here. He is reshaping the most basic Roman institution around Jesus, who rules by his self-giving love. And so while he doesn't abolish the household structure outright, the exalted Messiah demands that it be transformed, almost beyond the point of recognition for any Roman living in Colossae. You can see this most clearly in the letter's conclusion. After a request for prayer, Paul applies these instructions about Christian slaves and masters. And we discover that Tychicus is the one carrying and reading this letter to the Colossians. And he's accompanied by a certain Onesimus, who was a former slave to a Colossian Christian named Philemon. And we discover from another letter addressed to Philemon that Onesimus had escaped from his master. It was a crime worthy of imprisonment. But Paul asks the whole church to greet Onesimus as a faithful and beloved brother in the Lord. And then in the letter to Philemon, Paul says that he should receive Onesimus no longer as a slave, but as a brother. Talk about ending the letter with a punch. So in the letter to the Colossians, Paul is inviting us to see that no part of human existence remains untouched by the loving and liberating rule of the risen Jesus. Our suffering, our temptation to compromise, our moral character, the power dynamics in our homes, all of it must be re-examined and transformed. We are invited to live in the present as if the new creation really arrived when Jesus rose from the dead. And that's what the letter to the Colossians is all about. So as we saw, Colossians begins with Paul's greeting to the church. And he commends them for three things. And if you find at the start of a lot of Paul's letters, he writes to each of the different churches. And at the start of it, he often commends three things. Either their complete excellence in these three things, or their excellence in one or two of these things and they're lacking one. Um, But it's faith, love and hope. Those are the three things that Paul basically starts off his every letter to. And so here we see that he commends the church in Colossae for their faith in Jesus Christ, their love for all the saints, and hope. And here Paul presents the idea, in, uh, if you wanted to open up to Colossians, um, follow along here and through the verses 1 and 2, etc. Um, Paul, Paul says here that, that faith and love are actually based on hope. And that's why I've titled the series the hope of the gospel. Because this notion of the hope of the gospel is so central to Paul's teaching and should be central, a central pillar in any Bible-believing New Testament church. For Paul, 
hope is not some sort of wish. You know, I, I hope that the, the Cats win the grand final. I, I hope our move goes smoothly tomorrow. I hope the rain will stay away or I hope the rain will come and water my crops or, or you know, we, we use hope all the time as a wish. But for Paul, he doesn't use hope as some kind of wish like we do so often. Paul's idea behind hope is that it is the thing hoped for, something we can anticipate with confidence. Our hope is the gospel. The reward for a life of faith laid up in heaven where no earthly ruler or demonic power can rob believers of the reality of this hope. Look what he says in Colossians chapter 1 verses 3 to 6. We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you because we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all God's people. The faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in heaven and about which you have already heard in the true message of the gospel that has come to you. And so here the faith and love that spring from the hope stored up for you in the true message of the gospel is the point of this part of his letter. Hope is such a pivotal concept because without hope that we receive in the gospel where else can love and faith spring from well they could spring potentially from fear fear the punishment if i don't believe they could spring from duty well i've been raised this way and it's my duty to raise my kids this way and you know that that's just what we do it's it's my duty it could spring from religion I have to do these things to earn God's favour and the approval of God and man. They they sound a lot like drudgery to me and pretty close to slavery. They sound like the complete opposite motivation and reason than what the truth of the gospel brings, which sets us free. Faith and love spring from hope, and that hope is the gospel. On the side of Mount Wellington, which towers over Hobart, is a natural spring. This spring is uh, what has brought you know, the life-giving fresh water to the city of Hobart as it began over 200 years ago and still flows today. It's not now used to water the people of Hobart. There are other things that have been built since. But I've drunk water from that spring and it's very tasty. It's nice and cold and, and it's there 24-7, 365 days a year, even on leap years. You know, does the 366 as well. When they were originally settling Tasmania and, and sort of the Hobart region up the Derwent River, they originally settled um, opposite on the eastern shore and they settled in a place called Risdon Cove, which had an intermittently flowing creek. And so that was unsuitable because they would have to search for water for half, a, half of the year um, and so until they discovered at the foot of Mount Wellington this spring that comes through, a natural rivulet and everything that came through from the spring of Mount Wellington. And uh, in winter, if you're driving up the mountain and you want to see the snow, you, normally you have to stop at the springs because they close the road because of the snow most of the year. And so everyone knows where the springs are because well, that's where you stop mostly. And, and so what happened with this spring from Mount Wellington was that the spring brought life to the city of Hobart. And so it is with hope. Hope is the spring that brings life to faith and love. It brings faith and love to life. And that hope that is found in the gospel is something that we actually pass on 
to others. Verse 6, in the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it and truly understood God's grace. You learned it from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf and who also told us of your love in the Spirit. See, Paul had never visited the church in Colossae. He didn't plant it. He didn't send leaders to it. But Epaphras heard the gospel from Paul while Epaphras was in Ephesus. He went back to his hometown. He shared the gospel. He passed it on and he planted the church. Epaphras passed on the hope of the gospel to others and this church grew in Colossae as a result. And it follows the pattern of how the gospel moves and works, bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world. If it wasn't for Epaphras sharing the hope of the gospel in his hometown, then that church would not exist. And Epaphras stands out to me as a wonderful testimony of the fruit of faithfulness and the fruit of seizing the gospel opportunities that God gave him. I pray that we would be a church full of people like Epaphras, full of, of sharing the hope that we have in the gospel with others and planting you know, that gospel as a seed in the relationships that we have with other people around us. In verse 9, Paul continues giving thanks to God for the church and he encourages them. Just listen to the heart that Paul has and what he prays for these people whom he's, he's never met but are family. He says in verse 9, For this reason, since the day we heard about you, we have not stopped praying for you. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives, so that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience and giving joyful thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of his holy people in the kingdom of light. For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And so we see from Paul's writings here that these areas, as, as they are as worthy of the Lord and, and pleasing to him, bearing fruit in good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened by God's power to enable endurance and patience, giving joyful thanks to the Father as his redeemed and forgiven children. These are things commended to us. And Paul then lays out for us the most beautiful, powerful and truth filled description of jesus christ and so i'm just going to go verse by verse and try and explain the richness and depth of what paul tries uh, of what he writes here about jesus christ and and his supremacy and preeminence so verse 15 of colossians chapter 1 the son is the image of the invisible god the firstborn over all creation so what paul does here is he evokes the imagery of the rights and privileges of a firstborn son and especially the son of a monarch who would inherit ruling sovereignty. And it's the same sort of language that is used of King David in Psalm 89. And so Jesus Christ is the Son of God the Father and is the inheritor of ruling sovereignty over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, 
With the thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. You see, Jesus didn't come into existence when he was born of the Virgin Mary. He was the agent of creation through whom God made heaven and earth. Jesus cannot be the first thing created since it says here that all things, without exception, were created by him. And Paul then lists for us the spheres of authority that Jesus rules over. He rules over all things, both earthly and heavenly. He rules over the visible and the invisible. He rules over kings and queens, presidents and prime ministers, premiers and governors. You know, I'm sometimes concerned by the lack of confidence that some Christians display in the role that Jesus has in our world. You know, when, when you have Jesus in his rightful place, as the Bible teaches here, th- then what have we actually got to worry about? He rules over it all. He's got it all sorted. We can have confidence and trust in Christ over everything if we indeed place him in his right position as ruler over all. And so whatever prime minister we have, whatever king, queen or president exists in the world of any country, this passage tells us that they are there because Jesus has allowed it to occur. He is sovereign over all. And I guess then the question you ask is this leader over our nation there as a blessing or are they there as punishment? That's probably the only question you've got to ask. But you don't have to question Jesus' authority over it. You don't have to question God's, um, why did God let this leader rule over this country? He's appointed those leaders so we can have confidence in his plans and purposes that they will come to pass. And so for me, I'm not concerned with Donald Trump as US president. I'm not concerned with Scott Morrison as our Prime Minister because ultimately, who's in control? Jesus Christ. So, uh, you know, if we don't have, if, if we've got an issue with those governing over us, then maybe we've actually got an issue with our submission to Christ's authority because they're in place by his allowance and, and his will ultimately. But they, they might be a blessing. They might also be a curse. <laughs> and that's up to God to choose. Paul teaches here that Jesus is not only the agent of creation but he's also the goal of creation for everything was created by him that's him being the agent and for him that is the goal of creation that is for his honor and for his praise and since jesus is in this sense that the goal of creation of course he must be fully god and worthy of our praise forget the place of jesus wrong then we've actually robbed ourselves of the ability to trust in him completely. And we then rob ourselves of the ability to worship him in spirit and and in the truth of who he is. We end up then worshipping a lesser God if we don't understand this aspect of Jesus Christ. Verse 17, he is before all things and in him all things hold together. Hot topic alert. Something that will probably be an, an unpopular opinion, particularly in our world today, but I'm going to go, go, go there anyway. Here it is, controversial statement, potentially number one today. Have I already made one? Maybe it's number two. Anyway, I personally do not believe that we're in a climate emergency. I don't. And why not? Did you read that verse? That's why not. Jesus is before all things, and in him, what? All things hold together. Right, So if this is true, and it is, then Jesus has got our world's climate where? 
in his control. God governs all of creation, including our planet and our climate. So I'm not concerned with our climate because I trust that Jesus has it all under control. Now, do I believe that we should reduce pollution? 100% yes. We should be good stewards of the resources that God has given us. We shouldn't exploit it just for profit or for personal gain. We should be good stewards of what God has given us. We should reduce the amount of plastic going into our oceans and into the food chain. We should reduce the amount of rubbish we create if possible. But God has also given us dominion over creation and told us to be fruitful and multiply And that was in Genesis, and he hasn't rescinded that command. And I guess another question on pollution, if carbon dioxide is a pollutant, why has God created a world in such a way that CO2, carbon dioxide, is the food that feeds plants? God has mandated carbon dioxide for our survival. The more food I have, the more I eat, the more energy I have available, whether I use that or not. So if that happens for me, then maybe if the levels of CO2 increases, then isn't that the same for plants? Don't they then have more food available to to eat more and to to produce more? And, you know, our plants and crops and the stuff we eat, maybe our growing population, um, you know, God is at work in increasing the CO2 so our plants will grow better and produce more, you know, and, 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 and yield more to keep us and what we eat fed. It's all possible. So I'm not alarmed by the climate, Because I believe the Bible when it says that Jesus has it all under control. Now, you don't have to agree with me on that. You don't, all right? This isn't like a a doctrinal position of, well, you're either in or you're out based on this, okay? You know, it's not one of those things. It's not the gospel, but it's, you know, it's just in him all things hold together. That's what the Bible says, and that's one way of applying this today. So you don't have to agree with me. You can instead believe the media and what the world tells you. That's fine. And I find, you know, people keep um, coming up with this term that the science is settled. Well, when has the science been settled? On anything. One day a study comes out saying eating this is bad for you, it give you cancer. The next day another one comes out saying eating this, the same thing, is good for you and will give you these benefits. Like the science on what is settled. Um, as, and as we've looked back through history, you can see how science changes. Doctors used to prescribe smoking for people who had lung issues, because that's what the science was telling them, right? That the science is settled. Anyway, he's before all things, and in him all things hold together. My point is that Christ continually sustains his creation, preventing it from falling into chaos or disintegrating. And, you know, it doesn't, the Bible is not just this one verse about this. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says that Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So it's not just this one verse that when somebody asks me, why, why are you not concerned about the climate, you know? Well, I have full faith and trust in Jesus Christ. It's all in his control. That's what the Bible tells me. And I had a friend ask me recently, why, why are Christians silent on this issue of, of climate so often, um, unless they've drunk the Kool-Aid? Um, and I said, well, because ultimately, th- this verse in Colossians and this verse in Hebrews says that Jesus has it all under control. So why should we be concerned? Why should we take on worries when Christ says, cast your cares upon me? You know, like it's not my concern. It's all in God's control. And so that's where I believe God holds his power. And that's where it is expressed in one aspect of of his creation. But this here, verse 18, is one of my favorite parts of this opening part of Colossians. Jesus Christ 
and he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so in everything he might have the supremacy. You know, Paul speaks elsewhere of the, the, the body of Christ, um, the, the church being the body of Christ, like 1 Corinthians 12:27. But he takes the image a step further here and envisions Christ as the head of the body. Using this metaphor, Paul conveys Christ's leadership over the body, providing for all we need. And we're reminded of the glory of Christ in his overcoming power and supremacy. And I love the fact that Christ is the head of the church. Because you know what? That means that you aren't and I am not. I think that is just brilliant. He's the head of the church. And anyone that has a system set up where, with anything else other than Jesus as the head of the church have got it wrong. Because the Bible says here, he is the head of the body. We are that body. And so, we don't have to worry. Because he's directing everything. He's directing our path. If I want to make a decision, where is the seat of that decision being made? In my mind. In my head. Right? So the same would we can transfer as true for the body of Christ. Where does the automatic responses and, and everything that governs the rest of our body, where does all that occur? In the head. We don't consciously think about, breathe in, breathe out. Breathe in, breathe out. Right? We don't consciously have to think that, but that is being done behind the scenes in here. And I feel like the same is, is true for the church with Jesus as the head. The natural things occur and, and the body just flows naturally from the government government governance of the head providing for our needs verse 19 for god was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him other versions say the fullness of god dwelt bodily clunky isn't it that that sort of a a sentence but it, it, it conveys the fact that you know there's this this fullness language here is reminiscent of it's used in the Old Testament where, where it was said that God filled the temple with his presence. Jesus not only bears God's glory, but all that God is also dwells in him. He possesses the wisdom, the power, spirit, and the glory of God. To say that all this divine fullness dwells in Jesus is to say that he is fully God. And through him to reconcile himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. As the Prince of Peace, Jesus will ultimately quell all rebellion against God and his purposes. For believers, this means um, present reconciliation to God as his friends. As for non-believers and demonic powers, Christ's universal reign of peace will be enforced on them. For their rebellion will be decisively defeated by Christ as conquering king so that they can no longer do any harm in the universe that is yet to come. The basis for Christ's reign of peace is the blood of his cross. And so the cross truly is the pivotal point in human and cosmic history. It's because of that moment that hope springs. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Paul presents a strong contrast between the Colossians' pre-Christian status and their favorable situation now 
as Christians. Sin has resulted in estrangement from God. We are not good enough. That is the start of the gospel. And our sin creates the need for reconciliation. Part of that is that before we responded to faith in the gospel, we were hostile towards God. We were enemies in our mind. And the result of reconciliation is that Christ is now working in all believers to present us as holy and blameless before God. That's his work. And it's the same language used in Leviticus, speaking of unblemished animals that the priest would bring for a sacrifice to God. When Christ brings his followers to the Father for inspection, we will be found to be above reproach and free from accusation, all because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross by his physical body and his death. That is the gospel. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. One of the literary constructs when you study scripture is this thing called bookends. If something starts with a concept and then that concept is reiterated towards the end of something, that's what's called bookend. And so that means that the whole passage between those bookends is covered sort of like this long bow you know, that covers everything else, that that's the main point of this whole passage. So where do we start this passage? Faith and love spring from hope. Where do we end this passage? Do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, right? This whole area is all about hope. The preeminence and, and the, the awesomeness of Christ is all about hope. It's all the hope that he brings. And so this whole thing is all summed up in hope because it starts and finishes with hope. They're called bookends. So here for Paul, faithfulness to the end is essential in the Christian life because being established and firm. It reminds me of the parable that Jesus taught about the house built on firm foundations compared to the one built on shoddy foundations. I've had a bit of an experience the last couple of weeks with a kind of shoddy foundation, sort of. I mean, I can stretch it to make the fit, fit the analogy here anyway. I'll, I'll do that. So we're moving into our house tomorrow. The last month we've um, been renovating the place um, mainly Brad's been renovating it. He's been excellent. He's a great builder and uh, he's helped us by re- replacing a floor and retiling our ensuite and patching holes and putting up new walls and everything. We knocked down a chimney and did a whole lot of, a lot of different stuff and uh, he's been great. So it's been a blessing. And so have our electricians, surprisingly enough. They have been a blessing because they have had a, an absolutely terrible, terrible job trying to fix all the electrical issues that they found in our house. I met with them uh, last Monday. We had a sort of a meeting because the original quote was, you know, five or $6,000 and we'd blown through that in the first week. And then they, they said, oh, can we meet with you the Monday afternoon? And I was like, yeah, sure. So we met with them at four o'clock and they spent the, the first half an hour of our meeting just laughing, laughing at all the stuff that they'd come across and all the stuff that they'd found and all the stuff that they'd fixed. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is great. But after half an hour, I was like, okay, come on, seriously. <laughs> and so uh, one of the things that they came across was on Tuesday this week was supposed to be the final the final push, the final fit off, complete all the electricals inside the house. When they left Tuesday, they left like this. That That is our master bedroom that we're supposed to be moving into tomorrow. It's still in this state, except some of the stuff's moving. All the electrical cables you can see on the floor there, well, that's only half that they pulled out of that wall. The rest went in the skip already before I took this photo. Um, 
there was just a spaghetti junction of wires behind that wall. They kept on cutting little holes and, and pulling out wires and just, just like discovering all these wires everywhere. They're all live, open-ended, like just a complete hazard. And so that's why, of course, that whole backhand of the house was tripping all the time. And so they ended up just going, look, it's going to be easy. We just cut this big hole, rip it all out, and then you can plaster over it again. So I was like, thank you. Uh-huh. Yeah, they said it was one of the worst houses that they'd come across and, and just, just discovered shoddy work left, right and centre. Um, what was supposed to take about two to three days for two or three guys took two to three weeks for, two, for, for more. And so, you know, they even had to call in other, other electricians just to try and get stuff done in, top, in time for us. And basically, you know, they've rewired so much of the house it's now safe. So that's really good. Now to make this fit my analogy. You can't build with strength and confidence if you don't have a firm foundation. And you can't grow and flourish if the power isn't getting through or shorts out along the journey. Paul expects believers will continue in faith and will continue to grow and flourish with solid biblical teaching and remain focused and unmoved from the central principle that guides, governs and energizes the Christian life. The hope of the gospel. Do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. You know, I started today saying that faith and love spring from hope. That hope, that, that hope is the hope of the gospel. And we finish there too. This is those bookings. Do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. Because I believe that we are called, as image bearers of the king, we are called to bring hope. To pass it on and to bring the hope of the gospel. So how can we do that this week? How can we do that next week? How can we be people who bring the hope of the gospel? Well, maybe it is to resolve that you will invest into your foundation, invest into growing in faith and love, invest into growing your understanding and knowledge of the hope of the gospel, to study the scriptures and to continue to grow and build on your foundation of the gospel. My brother Matthew, who's the oldest brother, there's three of us, he is, is an incredibly hard worker. He has a really good, strong work ethic. But what he lacks from time to time is motivation. And that is like absolutely supercharged if he has to do anything by himself. He just will procrastinate and he won't get anything done. He's a sort of guy that, you know, if you he, if he's got a... Uh, and he's fairly handy, so he's... He's renovated his own house. He's, he's built studio apartments. He's done a whole lot of different stuff. And, it, you know, it's great what he's done for his family in Adelaide. But the amount of times that he, he'll call up my dad and say, hey, dad, can you come down, you know, two and a half hours from Barry? Can you come down and help me over the weekend or something on your day off, you know, come and help me build this thing? And, you know, he would have been going for, for weeks and weeks and weeks doing this little thing here and then he gets distracted and goes to something else. But when he's got someone working there with him, He's on ball and, and, and just that energy that comes from doing things together with family, it just sparks something that is just creates this amazing momentum in him and the ability to complete whatever's before him, which didn't exist when he did it alone. How many of us feel like that is us when it comes to investing in our spiritual foundation? We find we lack motivation so quickly when we're praying by ourselves or when we're opening the scriptures and we're reading through it and it's not making sense and you just get, eh, just close it, move something, go somewhere else. That is what family is for, to do those things together, 
to help bring that energy that comes from the relationships and from learning and growing together. You know, one aspect of this might be to say, hey, I really want to join some sort of small group, a Bible study, discipleship team. What I don't know, the names, they change every year, don't they? Home group, small group, life group, connect group, you know, Bible study, this, you know, whatever. They're all the same. You do life together. You learn and grow with each other. And you grow in friendship as well. Maybe it's to, to say, hey, look, I really want to join one of those. You know, we don't have any right today actually running officially. We've got Nikki who's offered to host one. She just given birth to a baby last last week or two. So maybe we need to give her a little bit of time before we say, hey, yep, we're here. Um, but I know there's already, you know, four to six people who've said, yep, I'd love to be part of that. You know, we will host one ourselves as soon as we're set up. Um, we'll start one of an evening um, that's available, open for, for anyone that wants to attend. Maybe there's other ways you can do that as well, you know, to, to meet with others and to grow and to build that foundation and to, to I guess, help that energy that comes from a, a growing, vital relationship with Christ, you know, helps that, that flow through our lives. Maybe it's simply just calling up someone on the phone and praying together if you're struggling with prayer. You can always come to our prayer meetings on a, a Wednesday morning at 10 o'clock. We, we meet for pastoral care at 9.30 and then we're usually praying by about 10. Same with Thursday nights. We do it at 7 for pastoral care and 7.30 we usually start praying as well. If, if you're struggling with prayer, maybe come and do it with other people. You know, one of the greatest things that you, our mobile phones have given us is that the ability to speak to somebody is instantaneous. And so why not call up and say, hey, will you pray with me? These are just ways that we can help bring the hope of the gospel and, and build that foundation for us. You know, one of the things that um, this passage encourages us to do is to share the gospel. Maybe there's ways that you can do that too. And maybe that might be to meet up with a friend and share struggles that you've maybe have both been having and, and doubts and questions that you have and, and, and to share each other where maybe you lack some understanding and, and you can walk together you know, towards a better understanding of the gospel and the hope we have in Jesus Christ. Maybe it's to visit someone who's lonely and be that friend for them. Maybe it's to encourage someone who's down. Maybe it's to celebrate with someone who is, is up. Maybe it's to make a meal and, and share that with a family. We know that there's a, um, there's a couple in our church who right now actually would, would really appreciate um, a couple of meals. So we're, we're, um, Helen and Matt are heading out there on Friday to meet with them. So if you, you know, anyone wants to bring a meals in, you know, like microwave containers and just drop, drop in the freezer here throughout the week before Friday, we'd love, you know, if you want to take up that opportunity to share that love and bring bring that hope in that, that, that very practical, loving way. And maybe it's simply just by praying for your friends and your family. How are you going to build on your foundation of hope from which springs faith and love? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the hope of the gospel. Lord, we thank you that in you all things hold together. Jesus, we celebrate the fact that you are in things, you're before all things, and you are the head of this body of the church. And Lord, we can so often share love and, and, and our faith, and Lord, I pray that that would spring from the hope that we have in the gospel. That, Lord, the gospel would be so central to our lives that we look at life through the fact that we are forgiven sons and daughters of the King. That, Lord, you have reconciled ourselves to you. That, Lord, when you look at us, you see the sacrifice of Jesus on 
our behalf and so you look at us as above reproach as blameless as spotless lord may we live from from that understanding of ourselves and our understanding of who you are and may that energize and bring a sense of of your power into our lives so that you can help us bring the hope of the gospel in our circumstances and apply that hope to our circumstances lord i pray that this week would be one where your conviction bears strong and we would actually do something to bring hope to pass on what we have been given so i pray for our time this morning that you would bless this and that these themes from your scriptures would pop into our minds throughout this week ahead and that lord jesus you would be ever present with us lord i pray as we leave this place and go about our general daily business that lord you would bless that too you would bring your hope to those circumstances too i pray for the rest of this series in colossians as well that would be a great blessing for us for this time and uh, that lord you would be praised and glorified through it all we pray this in the name of jesus amen